Hey there, it's me, Malika. For the next few episodes, I'm handing over the reins to my colleague, Jennifer Glass, to let her share what she's been working on. And I'll see you soon. Baghdad is beginning to be blacked out now. Large sections of the city losing its lighting. I think you'll be able to hear this sound. The sounds you're hearing mark the beginning of the first major U.S. war in the Middle East, Operation Desert Storm. The night sky of Baghdad, the time here about uh, 20 minutes, 3 in the morning. January 17, 1991, Iraqi time. Captured live by the newly nascent cable TV channel CNN. The president may be going on television later this evening to explain what exactly is going on. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. 30 years later, Desert Storm, a war that seemed like a quick victory for the United States then, may have had very different consequences looking back now. This is part two of our three-part podcast series. In part one, we told the story of how Iraq invaded Kuwait, and we left you with an army gathered on Saudi Arabia's northern border, ready for a fight. Huge, great amounts of kit, goods, containers full of everything, food, ammunition dumps, lines and lines of small reconnaissance vehicles, a tremendous military buildup, which implies there is going to be a tremendous fight. Today, we'll hear about the war from people who lived through it and how they tried to make it to the other side. From the invasion to ceasefire, it was 30 weeks. But in those 30 weeks, the world changed. I'm Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Uday Al-Najjar, and I work at Al Jazeera as an assignment editor. I was born in Baghdad in 1980, so we called ourselves the gunpowder generation. We were born with a war, and we continued seeing wars from beginning till now. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. That neighbor was Kuwait. And when Uday woke up in Baghdad that morning, he was expecting August 2nd, 1990, to be just like any other hot summer day. August 2nd, it was summer vacation, so I woke up, got on my bicycle, took some money from my mom, rode my bicycle to a spot that started a patisserie. So I went and bought a few pastries, got back, and I can see my mom shuffling through the radio frequencies, trying to figure out what is going on. She can't find Radio Kuwait, the morning show that she really enjoyed listening to, and she was really puzzled, going back and forth, going back and forth. Nothing is there, nothing is there. And I remember turning on the TV, and normally TV in Iraq in those years, during summer vacation, you there is a special kind of morning programming that is mainly catered for kids who are off school. But when we turned it on, it seemed very official. It had uh, They had some, I believe, some nationalistic songs. And then there was an announcement that came up where Iraq had gone into Kuwait to liberate, and I'm doing some air quotations right now, 
نشد الأحرار من أبناء الكويت العزيزة. It was 1990. I was 10 years old. I did not know what that meant, to be honest. But I can see what my mom's face changed when she heard that we went into Kuwait. Looking back on it now, Salah Nasrawi, then an Iraqi journalist for the Associated Press, says it was more than just a day. I mean, that was uh, how it all started for Iraqis. That was the day. That was the day when the whole tragedy of Iraq started. The tragedy of its people, the tragedy of its state, the journey, you know, toward Iraq's uh, destruction. Almost from the beginning, the United States started building up a coalition of armed forces ready to attack Baghdad and push Iraq's military out of Kuwait. On August 11th, then-commander of the U.S. Navy SEALs Eric Olson found himself in the Saudi Arabian desert. We started meeting with the larger American force as it arrived. And as I recall, the first ones we met with were out of the 82nd Airborne Division as they flew into Saudi Arabia and began to establish the real American presence just a day or two after we got there. In my direction, elements of the 82nd Airborne Division, as well as key units of the United States Air Force, are arriving today to take up defensive positions in Saudi Arabia. And then we realized through the month of August and into September that this might be a more deliberate thing. We were no longer in a quick reaction mode. We were more in a deliberate planning mode. We were training with Saudi forces. We were training with Kuwaiti forces. And specifically, the Kuwaiti Navy. Really importantly, three Kuwaiti ships got underway during the initial attack out of Kuwait Harbor. And the second squadron commander of Kuwait's Navy, Nasser al-Husseinan, desperately wanted to get those ships back into the water. He had been in Turkey when Iraq invaded his country, and now he wanted to get into the fight to reclaim it. So I needed permission to go to fix my boats, my ships, re-ammunition, and do some maintenance. Al-Husseinan had been welcomed to Saudi Arabia for the time being, but the Saudi government was hesitant to let him rearm. They didn't want to provoke Saddam. Saudi oil fields were also at risk of attack. But the U.S. Naval Forces Central Command was nearby, in Bahrain. So Al-Husseinan took a short trip across the border to see what kind of help the Americans could provide. I started meeting with some American high ranks, and I told them, I want to work with you, to be in the front lines. I don't want to be sitting here doing nothing. I got in contact with the U.S. Navy, and then with the SEALs. So we started from there. And so they were assigned to our task force to help get them ready. So that became a primary responsibility of mine to prepare the remnants of the Kuwaiti Navy to get re-engaged. And uh, I had a supply ship. So I asked them if they can modify it and make the flight deck strong enough to receive an American helicopter, the Seahawk, and they did it. We nicknamed it the Happy Duck because it was not that much of a warship. We put a crane on it and launched some things over the side. The Happy Duck was built to be habitable for a crew of 28 people, and we had 65 on it. 
40 Kuwaitis and 25 Americans for six weeks. We had very, very big support. They fixed our boats, our ships, they gave us missiles, they gave us ammunition. And that's why my units were the only Arab Islamic unit outside of the control of the Saudis. I went straight away under the American command because I wanted to work on the front line with the SEALs. Meanwhile, Kate 80 was in Saudi Arabia with the BBC, monitoring the air and ground preparations happening there. She was used to flying in on assignment, but she wasn't used to assignments like this. You have to learn so fast. And most of us had no military experience whatsoever. She learned quickly. As the weeks progressed, we found ourselves moving out into the desert. We were by then camping in the desert, and that is not the kind of camping that happens in any other circumstances. It's extremely tough, raw, physically extraordinarily demanding. And in circumstances which are pretty bleak by then, the various military units were beginning to work up They were going into all kinds of exercises, and we were along with them, running through difficult terrain with live fire coming over us, and we were filming it. But there were still a lot of unknowns. We went through frequent training for NBC, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Warfare. We were issued with kit gas masks, and we frequently were halted in just ordinary, everyday behavior with a shouted order or broadcast order of gas, 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 which meant you had to go into the whole routine regardless of where you were and what you were doing, just to get you to get the kit on, to get to the right position, to do the right things automatically. And nobody had any great sense of of the precise threat, but we were very conscious of it. Back in Baghdad, Iraqi General Abdu'l-Hab al-Qassab wished there had never been an invasion from the beginning. He kept hoping Iraqi President Saddam Hussein would just pull out of Kuwait, and he wasn't the only one. Chief of General Staff, General Khazraji, he mastered and designed the five strategic maneuvers which bring an end to the Iraqi Iran war. He is one of the most glamorous Iraqi generals. He advised them to pull out of Kuwait. Saddam's response? I was angry with them and fired him. Saddam fired that general in September. Despite his opposition to the invasion, General Al-Qassab managed to stay on. We could have uh, avoided the drastic situation after Desert Storm had started on the night of 16th of January 91. I had an English midterm that I was preparing for. At the same time, I had this toothache. That's Uday again. By now, it was winter, and he was back in school. And I remember falling asleep in my room as I had prepped as much as I can for my midterm. On January 16th, the UN resolution demanding Iraq withdraw from Kuwait expired. And very early on the morning of January 17th, Iraqi time, the American-led bombing of Baghdad began. 
It was something Uday says he will never forget. Waking up to the sound of the air raid siren going on. The air raid siren, it literally comes up as something bad is about to happen. I get goosebumps across my whole body. It's not like any siren. It's a really creepy siren. It is the sound of death. We are starting to see now there is a sky is lighting up, I guess, to the south with anti-aircraft fire. Some is bright red, other are splashes of uh, yellow light. We can see explosions, you know, airburst explosions from these weapons. Oh, oh, now there's a huge fire. Whoa, holy cow. That was a large airburst that we saw. It was filling the sky. And I think, John, that airburst took out the telecommunications. Now you may hear the bombs now. If you're still with us, you can hear the bombs now. They are hitting the center of this city. For days and weeks after, Uday's family would hide in their own home. There is a bathroom in the middle of the house that had a tiny window, so there was no chance of glass flying at anyone. And it was part of the concrete structure of the house. So if in case there was a collapse in the house or there was a bomb that fell onto the house, we felt that was the most secure part of the house. So that was the first location where we stayed and just sat down and thought, this is where we will hunker down. But Uday was still just a kid. There was a lot he didn't understand. Beyond the shock of what was going on, which was seeing the missiles, seeing everything that was ongoing outside, a typical kid, I thought, at least I don't have to do my midterm. I was happy I didn't have school the next day. After the American planes bombed Baghdad, they flew back down to the Gulf. Their way back, they have to pass over oil rigs. And those oil rigs, they had Iraqi troops with anti-air missiles, uh, Russian anti-air missiles, and they shoot at the aircrafts. The U.S. coalition needed Kuwaiti commander Al-Husaynan's help to deal with the problem. So I've been uh, ordered to neutralize or eliminate this threat from the oil rigs. So I, I, I laid down my plan and with USS Nicholas. First, we sent a helicopter to check, see how many, uh, what weapons they had. And we made away the plan and we asked them to give up without fight, but they did not. Maybe they were forced not to. So we just started shooting on top of their heads. We, we did not want to kill, but because we know those poor soldiers, they have nothing to do with all this war. They've just uh, placed on there and with, or they left without food or anything. But by collateral damage, two of them died. So I, we lowered our uh, dinghies and we went on board. We took them all on board our ships. We captured about 13 of the Iraqis. Some are officers, some are Ba'thi party soldiers. And we put them in a helo and took them to Saudi Arabia. Uh, we took all the weapons uh, on those oil rigs. Uh, it was safe for our aircrafts to go and do their job and come back safely. It was the first actual operation on the surface. The first POWs, prisoners of war. 
the retaking of an island off the coast of Kuwait, Kahru Island. It's actually the second real close interaction between our forces and the Iraqi forces. It was manned by a number of Iraqis, purported to be Iraqi Special Operations Forces, Iraqi Special Forces. They were using that island for reconnaissance, tracking the flow of American forces such as they could. So we were telling the Iraqis to come out and surrender and that they were outnumbered and that this was going to be uh, serious consequences for them if they didn't do what we were saying. I'm trying to do this in broken Arabic. I was a, a, a little bit of an Arabic speaker at the time. But this was the first piece of Kuwaiti land that was recovered and the largest um, capture of, of Iraqi forces. And it happened on my birthday, on the, on the 24th of January. And Commander Olson received a second gift, access to some Iraqi intelligence. Some of it came back to us in terms of the presence of Iraqis on other islands and oil platforms. And some of it went back into the much bigger sort of U.S. intelligence picture. Things were moving quickly in the Gulf. Olson started to notice his side's advantage and that Iraqi forces weren't what he expected. We believed that they would be better equipped, better trained, more capable forces. To their full credit, they realized that and surrendered, knowing that that they weren't going to come out well in a in a kind of a violent fight. And so this was more of a sweeping up operation than it was sort of assault and seize operation. We had to go in ready for a fight, but in most cases, uh, there wasn't one. And, uh, and the Iraqis were, once they realized that we were there in force, gave themselves up to us. Eventually, Kate got moving with some of the British forces on their way through the desert. First of all, the enormous great air bombardments went on for a long time, for weeks, while we were still in the desert a long way south of Kuwait. And we could see on the horizon, night after night, this great orange glow of exploding ordnance. And with no idea, really, of what was being hit, of who was beneath it, or of what effect it was having. The bombing of Baghdad had paved the way for a big land push by the massive coalition forces, and Kate was right with it. To be quite honest, nobody actually sort of said go. We knew that it was coming near, and we found ourselves going into a huge formation, heading for what is called the berm, which was a huge sand wall on the border of Iraq. And it was a very long drive, I remember. There we are in the dark, in a pickup truck, my cameraman and I, all we're following, and we have no lights on. There are just tiny pinpricks in red of the vehicle ahead for miles and miles. And then as you get nearer and nearer, you become aware that there is rumbling ahead of you. By the time we reached the berm, there were these American soldiers using silums, these colored batons, because that was the only way of communication with various signals. When I looked and found there was a vehicle next to me, it should have been a truck. It turned out to be a fully bombed up M1A1 American tank. 
at which point I realized we'd probably shifted forward in a way I hadn't expected. And you're a journalist. You're just crossing over into the foreign territory. You're invading. You're part of an invasion force. And you're really nearer the pointy nose of it than you had imagined. But you just keep going. I remember opening the pickup truck door and the sound which we'd been thinking was our cab and the rumble of our wheels making was just deafening. The sound of an invading army tanks firing only a short distance ahead of us, everything coming up, the roar of war was absolutely terrifying. Then shapes started to appear, and Kate started to get a picture of what was going on around her. Through the darkness and the dust, there came a little column of people with a couple of soldiers with them. They were approaching her. And they were very clearly Iraqis. And they looked completely and utterly disheveled, frightened, desperate. And they were people who right at the front end of things had been captured. And they were terrified. It's an absolutely surreal moment, particularly when they realized that I was a woman. I was the only woman with 43,000 British troops. And in the chaos, it was Kate who started talking to them. Quiet them down. You've got to make sure that nobody harms them, that they don't do any harm, etc. And you move them on to another unit, which we found very quickly, and said, you take them back down the line, which is what you do with prisoners of war. And it was an extraordinary moment, and there were a good number of them. This was so early, Kate was asking herself if she was seeing what she thought she was seeing. They've surrendered already. It could have been a false dawn. But no, that was it. In huge numbers, they were surrendering. The picture of war did not improve as they progressed. We then moved forward even further. And by then, we began to see some of the wreckage, which is truly horrendous. Tanks on fire armored personnel carriers on fire. It is like going through a grotesque graveyard of vehicles still on fire. And there are dead people. And you can see, as dawn is coming up, you can see it all. It's dreadful. It's dreadful. And it's stretched mile after mile. How would it all end? That's on Friday's episode of The Take part three of our series on Desert Storm 30 years after the war. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Ney Alvarez, Dina Kesbe, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, and me, Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal this week. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. In addition to the Desert Storm podcasts, we'll also be tracing the course of the war on our website, aljazeera.com, so check that out. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake.